In the early 1600s, a man named Galileo Galilei pointed his telescope to the heavens and made a surprising discovery. The predominant theory of the movement of the earth and the sun was that everything in the solar system revolved around the, sun, the earth, I should say. This geocentric model of the orbits of our solar system. Aristotle had said this. His view was that everything, everything in the solar system orbited around the earth. And a man named Copernicus had come some time before and had, had posited, no, there's a heliocentric model. Everything is orbiting around the sun. And yet it was Galileo who, when he looked into the heavens on his telescope, he noticed Jupiter and what he had believed to be stars uh, 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 near Jupiter. But in fact, he realized they were moons. Jupiter had moons. And the remarkable thing he noticed was that those moons were orbiting, orbiting around Jupiter. They weren't orbiting around the Earth, as Aristotle would have posited. He said, something's going on here. He then noticed Venus. He began tracking how Venus moved, and the phases of Venus conclusively demonstrated to him that Venus was not orbiting around the Earth. Instead, Venus was orbiting around the sun. And Galileo, as history tells us, was perhaps the dominant force in recognizing that the earth is orbiting the sun, not the other way around. Now, why do I start with this very basic, very simplistic lesson on orbits? It is because the simple fact is that even though humanity could look into the sky and know what was true, what was real, what actually fundamentally existed, there's a sun, there are planets, there are stars, that is our solar system, we are here on Earth. They could know all the basic realities of those objects, their existence. Yet if they did not understand the basic orientation of how it moved, of how the solar system held together in movement, they would be mistaken on fundamentally the orbits. They could have almost everything right, but because they were not oriented toward the center of our solar system, the sun, if they had the wrong orientation toward the earth, they ultimately would be very mistaken. I start there because as we began last week with understanding the simple question, what is the gospel? We understood certain, I think, basic realities about what the gospel is. For in 1 Corinthians 15, what we looked at last week, Paul says, I'm declaring unto you the gospel that I preach to you. What is the gospel? And you remember that we talked about the gospel being a divine plan. It is God's plan for the forgiveness of sins and for the salvation of the lost by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, the substitutionary atonement that Jesus Christ undertook on that cross for the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of mankind. We also talked about that in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that this also marries up with a historical fact. As Paul says, the gospel is not just that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture, not just that he rose from the, that he buried, that he was buried and he rose from the dead, but that he was seen. 
And we puzzled on this fact. Why is it an essential part of the gospel that Jesus was seen? And it is because the gospel is a historical fact that we are not simply believing a, a set of ideas or abstract be- beliefs, some kind of the- theological system, and that is our salvation. Our salvation is that we believe in a living person. Jesus is alive. He is coming back one day as judge. That is why someone does not become a Christian. They are not saved when they accept certain facts about the theology of Christianity. They become a Christian when they accept a living person. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Not believe the facts about the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on a living person who one day will come back as your judge. So these are the, you might say, the most basic elements of the gospel concluded with, as we said, the personal reception. As Paul said to the Corinthians, you have believed. You have believed in not only this divine truth, this divine plan, but in the historical fact, in the historical reality of who Jesus Christ is. And there is the foundation of the gospel. It is a divine plan for the salvation of mankind in a historical person, a living, resurrected Jesus and to be received by mankind. But I want to hasten to add this. If we do not have the right orientation toward the gospel, we, like those early, those early historians looking up at the heavens, those early astronomers might say, our orbits are wrong. Unless we know the orientation between God and man, in the gospel. What I want to encourage all of us tonight is that if you have an orientation in your gospel toward man, your orbits will be all messed up. It will only be when your orientation is toward God as the sun of all of our solar systems and around whom all of us orbit, only then will we truly understand the orbits of the gospel and how they relate to our own individual lives. Ephesians chapter one directs us to this orientation of the gospel. It's very interesting that in the first, at least, uh, at least in the first 13, 12 verses of this, we don't see the word gospel, and yet the gospel is all over this chapter. This is Paul's introduction to the fundamental purposes of God in the gospel, the, the gathering out of the world, the special people for himself in his church, the bringing together of lost sinners together, Jews and Gentiles of every different kind of person to be united in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and ultimately to be toward his eternal glory. That is what the book of Ephesians at its root is all about. And I want to do this by looking at a few characteristics of these verses. So rich with truth, we could spend an entire sermon series on each verse. We could just spend a sermon on each verse marching through it. We're going to come at it from an intentionally high level of a 50,000 foot view, if you will. But nonetheless, I want to look at it in three components because I think in these three components you'll see everything not only about what this chapter is trying to tell us, these 14 verses are trying to tell us, but also about the orientation of God and man in the gospel. And the first thing I want to look at is what God has provided for us in the present. What God has provided for us 
in the present. Now, this is going to have an overlap to what we looked at last week. What is the divine plan in the gospel? It is that God has given us the forgiveness of sins. He has sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. And I want to just pick up here in verse number 7 of Ephesians chapter 1. Because we'll again be looking at what he has done. What he has provided for us in the present. Verse 7 says, In whom that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That is something that Jesus has given us today in the gospel. It is ours. Notice then if you were to go back just a few verses into verse 5. He says of God that God has predestinated us. We'll get to that. God has predestinated us under the adoption of children to himself. So in other words, what he's saying is God has, has set the destination ahead of time that we would become his children by adoption. And how did this all come about? That Jesus, by his work, by his forgiveness of sins, we would be made the children of God. As Jesus came to teach us and, and is throughout even the, the Beatitudes, through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus came to show us that we have a Father in heaven. That is at the heart of the gospel. The gospel is not just about the forgiveness of sins. It is to something even greater than the forgiveness of sins. Why were your sins forgiven? So that you could be adopted into the family of God. So that you could come into relationship with God. You see, it would be one thing if your sins were forgiven, but you were still, if you will, held out by a divine stiff arm, by a God who says, stay away. But the gospel tells us not only does Jesus forgive us our sins by his redemption, but that God welcomes us into his family to be his children forever. We have this. This is the present tense provision that God has given us. Then fast forward here in chapter 1 to verse number 9. He says, God has made known unto us, in the present, he has made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. He tells us that he has made known to us in his word what he desires, what his eternal purposes are, what his plan is. And verse 8 tells us that this is his wisdom and prudence that he has abounded to us in. So you think of this overflow of what God has given us, a forgiveness of sins, a relationship with him, wisdom and prudence in understanding what God is up to in the world, what his fundamental plan is for humanity. But then notice this, not only that, he tells us that it is eternally secure. Notice in verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. We have obtained today an inheritance in the future. Being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Now notice verse 13. In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. There's that word. The gospel of your salvation. Whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed as a stamp of God's approval, as a stamp of his possession. We were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest, the down payment, the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. So what is the gospel for us in what we possess right now? We possess the forgiveness of sins. 
We possess the status of ch as children of God. We possess the wisdom of God in that which he has given us in our relationship with him. And we possess an eternal inheritance secure in him by the sealing of the spirit as God's possession in our lives and as a guarantee of what he will save us from and for in the future. That's what he's given us. But again, notice the connection to what we looked at last week. This is this divine plan that God has brought together for our provision in the present. What we have received, what mankind has received from God. But what I want us to see tonight is that if we're going to understand truly the gospel is going to be because in the present what we have received is sandwiched by what God has done in the past and what he has purposed for the future. And it is only when we recognize that man in what we have received in the present is oriented to what God has eternally decreed in the past and purposed to work out in the future will our orientation to the gospel be right. And let me see if I can explain. Let's go back to verse number three. Verse number three. Because I want us to see, secondly here, not just what God has provided in the present, but what he has purposed in the past. What he has purposed in the past. Start with me in verse 3, will you, of Ephesians chapter 1? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us. There's that, that provision in the present. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. That's where Paul starts. God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing up in heavenly places that you could possibly receive. Now notice verse four. According, just as, because, you might say, he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now stop there. God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings according as, because he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now you will not find a more hotly disputed topic perhaps across the entire breadth of Christendom throughout the entire history of the church than this. Election. What does it mean? And we're not going to be able to get into every single nook and cranny of it tonight. I don't hope to perfectly and completely resolve it in your mind other than to say this. It's true. God has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, if you were to just take that word chosen, it's actually used, used and, and other words that are very much like it, related to the same Greek word, are used throughout our New Testament and not even just related to salvation, not even just related to what God has purposed in the past. And if I could just describe it for you in the simplest terms, what you do, what God has done here in, cho cho in choosing is akin to what you do when you go to a fast food restaurant. You go to the menu and you choose. You say, I will have a number eight with extra pickles. I will have X, and you choose. The same word that is used here in, in Ephesians chapter one is used of Mary when she is with her sister Martha before Jesus, and Martha's bustling around serving, and Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And what does Jesus say of Martha? She has chosen that good part. What did Mary do? She saw two options, and she chose one. You could go on and see in other ways in which this word is simply the exercise of choice, of selection. 
or as we say, election. So what we would say from Ephesians 1 verse 4 is that God exercised his choice and selected us before the foundation of the world. That is the doctrine of election. So what does it mean to say that God chose us? Did he choose some generic description of people? I choose all who will believe. Or did he choose us in a more specific sense? Now, this would be another great division uh, between those who would try to understand this doctrine. Let me tell you what I see in Scripture. I see in Scripture the testimony of the, of the Holy Spirit that God selects individuals. This goes back to Jeremiah. Do you remember when Jeremiah was chosen to be a prophet? God speaks to Jeremiah to encourage him and to give him a charge for the work that he was to do. And listen to what God says. Before I formed thee in the belly, before you were ever born, Jeremiah 1.5 says, I knew thee and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. What's it mean? To sanctify is to set apart. That's the very idea of the word. I sanctified thee and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Before you were born, I had this calling for you. We think of the apostle Paul, a man who was so miraculously saved that he could not personally see any other way that he had come to Christ other than that God had exercised his choice. Listen to what he says in Galatians 1, speaking of the gospel, he says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me. Paul says, how, do I, how, did, how did I get saved? When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me in his by his grace to reveal his son in me, that's when I got saved. What else would we say about that than otherwise, than, other than that Paul believed that in a real way God had chosen him, he had elected him. Similarly, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is speaking to the Thessalonians, people who he had given the gospel to and were saved. And listen to what he says in, in chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. He has a heart of gratitude overflowing to the Thessalonians. Why? Because God, listen to these words, because God hath from the beginning chosen you. Who's he talking to? The Thessalonians. People sitting in a church, if you can picture it. People sitting in an, a called out assembly like this one. What would you hear if I said to you, God has told me that he chose you to salvation. Listen to what he says has chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. God chose you. So again, I take these words here in Ephesians 1 and as it's taught elsewhere in the scripture to say that God truly has elected. He has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now notice not only the fact that he chose us, but also that he chose us when? Before the foundation of the world. And do you know this idea that, that God had a purpose in the past that predated even the foundation, even the creation of the world? Do you know that has biblical, strong biblical basis too? Jesus himself said this. Jesus in Matthew 25, verse 34, again, you can write these references in, in your Bible if you want to go confirm them. In Matthew 25, 34, Jesus is giving the parable of the sheep and the goats. And he says to the sheep, 
in, in, in depicting that what the king, he himself, is going to say to these sheep and goats. He's, then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There's another verse I think that comes to mind that is really important for us to consider. Revelation 17 and Revelation 13, two different places. God speaks of people whose names were not written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. Do you know what scripture tells us? Your name, if you are a Christian, your name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8, Revelation 17.8. Your name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Why? According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now what does this mean to us if we are to embrace this idea that God has chosen, God has elected, God has selected? For some of us it can be a very confusing doctrine. For some, it can be a frightening doctrine. Has he chosen me? And I don't intend to get into all of the different aspects of it tonight, but I simply want to say this. Scripture connects this election not only to God's predestination, but according to his foreknowledge. He said, those whom he, hath, who, those whom he foreknew, Revel, uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 8, those whom he foreknew, he hath predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, that we are elect, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, what would this look like? How would this change the way that we think about the gospel? Well, the, the purpose of it we see throughout Scripture is to give you great comfort. To say that God is the one who exercised a choice in your behalf. Why? Because he knew you in advance. Why did he do that? Scripture doesn't tell us. He loves you. What does this mean for others? What does this mean for those who we are to preach the gospel to? There's a simple point of human responsibility. We'll get to that next week. I do want to address the subject of human responsibility because it's entirely consistent with the Bible, just like the doctrine of God's election is consistent with the Bible. I love the way that, Henry, uh, that Harry Aronside put it, the old pastor of Moody Bible Institute. He pictured, if you will, the gate of heaven, almost like that straight gate that we are called to enter into and if you can just imagine with me that gate of salvation, over the gate, it says these words, whosoever will may come. And you walk by and you say, whosoever will may come. And then you walk through that gate and now you're in. You have accepted the plan of salvation. You are a child of God. And you turn around and you look at the sign on the other side of the gate once you're in. And it says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Whosoever will may come, and you enter in, and you turn around, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. The doctrine of election is intended to be a great comfort to you. It is intended to be a great humbling to you. It is intended to be a great worship from you to God who chose you and wrote your name in the book of life before the foundation of the world through no merit of your own, through his grace and through his love. 
Now let me ask you this. Is that the way that you allow these verses to wash over you? When you hear chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, does your heart bow and worship and say, God, you did that for me when I did not deserve it at all? Or do we immediately get our boxing gloves up and say, I'm ready for a fight. I'm ready for an argument. I'm ready for a dispute. Let's not let it do that when what God intends is for us to be humbled and to be worshipful what he has done for us. So notice here what God has purposed in the past. You see this throughout these verses, not just here. He says, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. He goes on to say, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. He says in verse 9, he's made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. He says in verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. All things. That's what God works. He has purposed in the past. So again, notice first what God has provided in the present, what he has purposed in the past, and what I want to see finally from Ephesians 1 here is what he has predestined for the future. We hear that word predestined. And again, bells, I think, start going off in many of our, of our minds. I, I, I don't know what to think about that. I don't know if I agree with that. But again, just think about what the word predestined means. Destined means you have a destination. Predestined means the destination has been set ahead of time. It is looking forward to the future. You have been predestinated. You have a destination in front of you and that's where you are going. Now what does that mean in this context? Look with me again at verse 4. God has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's the purpose of his choice of us, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. What is the destination ahead of time? This eternal relationship with God as our Father. Not only that, if you fast forward then in verse number 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. And go back one verse to verse 10. Paul says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, don't let that phrase confuse you. What is the dispensation of the fullness of times? It's essentially the plan, God's plan for when the future will be ripe, when the time will be ripe, when the time is right, what will happen? He will gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Again, I want you to just picture this timeline. From eternity past, from before the foundation of the world, God chose us in him that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And for those, he set a destination ahead of time that we would be holy and without blame before him in love, that we would be, uh, that we would be adopted as his children in Christ Jesus. And then this act of reconciliation that God will gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. When will that happen? Philippians 2 tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, whether they be things in heaven, whether they be in things in earth, whether they be under the earth, 
and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is the predestination that has been set? In eternal future when there is a reconciliation of all things in Christ. When everything, the kingdom will have been delivered up in the words of 1 Corinthians 15. The kingdom will have been delivered up to Jesus Christ. All authority and power will be in him. Every, every rebellion against him will be put down forever. Satan will be banished. All those who have rejected him will be sentenced to judgment. And everything will be united in Jesus Christ eternally in heaven. In a new heaven and a new earth. This is the reconciliation. As Colossians 1 says, Jesus has made peace through the blood of the cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. That's the destination. That is God's eternal purpose. If you were to say, why did God create mankind knowing that there would be a fall? Why did God create mankind knowing that Adam and Eve would sin? The answer has to be here. It has to be that God saw that there would be a reconciliation of all things in the, in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that would be the exaltation of his name and the glory of his people. This is what he has predestined for the future. But there's one more thing that we need to see coming out throughout Ephesians chapter 1. Not only this relationship with God, not only this reconciliation of all things, but notice this recognition of his grace. Well, you see in verse 5 going into verse 6, God has predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now look at these words. To the praise of the glory of his grace. The praise of the glory. When you praise someone, you are giving them glory. That's what the idea. To the praise of the glory of what? What is the glory of? His grace. His unmerited favor toward us in Christ. To give us what we did not deserve in mercy. To elevate us to a status which we could never earn ourselves in grace. That is what God has done. And it will be to the praise of the glory of his grace. As he says in verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Do you remember that messianic passage in Isaiah chapter 61? Jesus quoted it when he came to earth, the servant of the Lord, all these things that he was to be doing. Listen to these words in Isaiah 61. He says, to the, the work of the Messiah is to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Sometimes people have criticized this idea that God does things for his glory, for his praise, by saying he sounds like a megalomaniac. He sounds like some person who just is insecure being who needs people to fall down and worship him. But C.S. Lewis recognized that that simply isn't the case. God's praise is not only because he is worthy of praise, as we will recognize forever in heaven, but because in his praise we find our fulfillment and our satisfaction C.S. Lewis noted that we cannot truly enjoy something fully 
unless we express it in praise. It's like that new love between a boy and a girl. They can't stop talking about each other. This is the thing I love about this boy. This is the thing I love about this girl. And, and the expression of that is something that makes it so much more enjoyable, so much more fulfilling. It's like going to an exciting event, a ball game, and seeing this wonderful victory, and suddenly you leave the ball game, and you just want to tell, did you see what happened? How amazing. You want to relive every part of it. Why? Because it is enhancing your joy. You're enhancing your excitement, and so on and on. Whether it's music, whatever you find that you love is what you are talking about, what you are praising, what you are glorifying. And God holds himself up as the centerpiece of the gospel, his glory, his praise, his worship in the plan of the gospel. Not only, as I said, because he is entirely worthy of it, but because one day when you are enraptured in him, when you are in love with him more than you conceivably could have imagined, your greatest joy will be accomplished in praising what you delight in, in praising what you love. And it will be a part of why heaven is perfect. Because you are able to participate in the unhindered worship and praise of a God who deserves it. Now again, I want us to see what has God given us in the gospel. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in, in heavenly places. He's given us the forgiveness of sins. He's given us relationship with God. He's given us an eternal, stable, secure future. But friends, we have to see that this middle of what God has done for us in the present is oriented around what he has purposed for us in the past and what he has predestined in the future, all to the praise of his glory, all to the praise of the glory of his grace. This is the centerpiece of the gospel. And I emphasize this because, as I said, it is very easy for us to look at the gospel and see ourselves at the center. Almost like for thousands of years, people looked at the earth and said, we're the center of all of this. It is easy to look at the gospel and focus only on what God has done for us in the present and what he will do for us in the future and miss what his purpose has been in the past and ultimately what his plan is to bring glory to himself in the work of Jesus Christ. And when we do this, our orbits are all out of whack. Let me suggest three things that truly having a God-centered orientation in the gospel will do for your evangelism and for my evangelism, the way that we present the gospel. The first thing it will do is that, that it will teach us that the, the gospel is not salesmanship. The gospel is not salesmanship. Perhaps you have been tempted along these lines or you have seen gospel presentations along these lines. And they go something like this. Are you not quite satisfied or fulfilled in your life? Do you want to experience prosperity and health in this life? Do you want to be blessed, receive God's blessings in this life? Do you want to go to heaven when you die and not hell? Here, if you will, sign on the dotted line. God's got a great deal for you. Now again, 
I don't want to suggest that we should never emphasize the blessings of what God gives us in the gospel. That's exactly what Jesus did to the woman at the well. When he said, if you asked of me, if you asked of me, I'd give you living water and you never have to thirst again. It's not to suggest that we should never suggest the blessings that are in the gospel. But when we exalt the gospel to be only something that God gives man, we have the tendency to create an orientation in which God, in a sense, is serving mankind, almost in a sense for how it reflects on him. Like God is recruiting us to his team. He's got a good salesmanship pitch to get us on his side. And that is so foreign to the gospel because the gospel is about man falling down and worshiping God in right orientation to him, not God being oriented to the service and the worship of mankind. I remember a a very uh, sincere brother telling me at one point, he says he'd been going to a church and he said, you know, in our church, he said, "We we don't really talk about repentance in the main service. That's something we wait to get into in the small groups. And he didn't say it like this, but the picture in my mind was almost like a fisherman dangling the bait out. And when we get him with the good stuff, all the blessings, all the benefits, then we'll kind of pull the hook, we'll reel him into the small group, and then we'll talk about all that stuff, about repentance, about taking up your cross and following him. And then I think about how Jesus gave the gospel And then I think about how the apostles gave the gospel. The very first presentation of the gospel, you Jews have executed Jesus, your Messiah. You better repent. You better get right with him. And I say, is that how the early church did it? Is that how the gospel presents the orientation of God to man in the gospel? That we're salesmen trying to get another prospect by emphasizing what is the benefit and pushing aside or de-emphasizing what is the cost or what is the requirement? Not if we're oriented to what the gospel is all about, which is what God has purposed in the past, what he has predestined in the future for the ultimate purpose above all things of being to the praise of the glory of his grace. Am I trying to be a salesman when I give the gospel? If I am, I'm not oriented the right way. My orbits are all out of whack. But the fact that the gospel presentation, evangelism is not salesmanship should also be, I think, extremely comforting to us. How many of you in the past have been hindered from giving the gospel, presenting the gospel, because you say, I don't know that I'm going to do a good job. I don't know if I'm going to have all the answers. What if they ask this question? I'm not prepared for that. What if they ask this question? I'm not sure I know the answer. What if they push back further on this? I'm not sure I've got all the apologetic reasons for that. Friends, have you considered that it's not up to you when people get saved? Have you considered that you're not the primary actor? That the orientation of the gospel is not around how skilled or how gifted your gospel presentation is? That the way the gospel is presented, the way that the the gospel, that the, I, I should say the evangelist is described in the Bible is one as a herald, not a salesman? What does a herald do? A herald doesn't frankly really care whether people accept the news or not. They're just there to give it. They walk into town and they say, this is the message from the king. Accept it. It's not about you. 
Reminded of what 2 Timothy 2 says when Paul is speaking to his protege, a man who was to be called to give the gospel. And he said, the servant of the Lord must not strive. He's not an arguer. But he must be gentle to all men. And then he says this. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. You're not a salesman. You're not a high school debater. You're not someone who has to get your boxing gloves on and get into the ring. What is your job? To in meekness instruct those who oppose themselves if God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. What is your job? Say what the truth is. And if they want to argue, say, that's okay. That's okay. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. I'm just telling you what God says. I'm just telling you there's a living Jesus and he's going to be your judge one day. And just leave it there. God's looking for heralds. He's looking for spokespeople. He's looking for people who will just simply stand and say what the truth is. And in the background, God is working. God is preparing. God is drawing people to himself. And ultimately, friends, and I suppose my last idea here is not only this fact that, we, that evangelism, is, is, evangelism is not salesmanship, should be humbling to me. Not only should it be challenging to me, but it also should be, in this sense, comforting and encouraging to me. Jesus said in John chapter 10, in what has been one of the most foundational verses for those who go on under the mission field. By the way, it's great to have Eric Meyer back with us tonight. Wonderful, wonderful to see one who has gone out to the mission field. Here's what scripture says, what Jesus said. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them I must bring. I must bring. What's he saying? Jesus ultimately is the one who brings people. Jesus ultimately is the one who calls people. Jesus ultimately is the one who draws people. What is our job to go out and proclaim? In other words, what I want to put in front of you tonight is that as we go out this Wednesday evening to East Phillips Park, there may be people in the park who Jesus are, who are in Jesus' fold, in a sense, they don't know it yet. Jesus perhaps is drawing them. Jesus is convicting them. Jesus is bringing them to himself by the Holy Spirit. And who's he looking for? People to proclaim the word to them. People to come boldly and lovingly and discerningly and spiritually and proclaim what God has said about our eternal destiny and about the divine plan that leads one to salvation. You see, in this sense, friends, the pressure ultimately is not on us. The pressure on us, the encouragement on us, is simply to be faithful, to be bold, to be spiritual, to be submitted to him, to proclaim that whosoever will may come and trust that God will draw the ones to himself. Here's the great part. You never know when that will be. I can tell you, as I saw just this last Wednesday evening, as we were out on a somewhat overcast, cloudy, 68-degree Wednesday evening handing out ice cream bars. People don't like ice cream bars too much in 68-degree weather. I guess that's a little bit of an overstatement, but it sure felt that way. And suddenly a car pulls up, and a guy gets out who is dealing with some real practical things, and he just needs someone to encourage him. Ron put his hand on him, prayed for him at a wonderful time. 
And then as he was coming up there, a woman walked by. She sent her kids to Straight Gate, including her oldest son. Her oldest son was shot and killed late last year. Now his son, her grandson, is living with her. And we encouraged her, we prayed with her, encouraged her to make that circle complete, come back and connect with us at church. What's going on? It's not us. It's that there's a God in heaven who draws people, who connects with people. That there's a spirit in the world today who is convicting people of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That there is an eternal purpose in the past that it looks ahead to an eternal plan into the future with all the benefits of salvation in the present. I want to close tonight by just asking you, how are your orbits looking? What is your orientation toward the gospel? Is it one of humble worship to God to say this is what you have done, this is what you have promised, and this is what you have called me to be in the present? If it's not, may we come into that right orientation only then will we truly be able and most practically be able to live out his calling for us in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for all that it teaches us. Thank you that you have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you have chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Thank you that you have predestined us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to yourself. Thank you that you have sealed us with that Holy Spirit of promise. Thank you for everything that you have by your grace and to the praise of your glory provided to us. And I pray, Father, that your people would worship you as you intend tonight. Let's bow. And I just encourage you tonight to make sure we're oriented the right way toward the gospel, that we have not developed a man-centered orientation, that truly our feet are on firm ground in the gospel of Christ. That we should be to the praise of his glory. Oh, Father, may we embrace our purpose in life to glorify you who have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. May that be true for this called out assembly of those at Straight Gate Church. May it be for each of us as we go our separate ways this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.